cancer industry specifically. It has changed dramatically. The field of biophotonics was just getting started. The first instrument that I bought was a microwave spectrum analyzer. It's time to shed light on our universe. This is All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light. Join us as we explore the latest in lasers, optics, spectroscopy, and microscopy. Each episode, you'll hear from leading voices from across the photonics landscape. We're brought to you by Photonics Media. This is Associate Editor Joel Williams. Here are this week's top stories. Researchers from the University of Bristol have claimed a new record for detecting squeezed light using a newly developed balanced homodyne detector. The work could pave the way for higher performance quantum computers and quantum communications. Material scientists at Kiel University in Germany have synthesized nanoscale gradient copolymers that possess distinct contradictory properties to create thin film polymer coatings that could be used to coat sensor devices and MEMS technology. The material coatings could also be applied to aircraft and glass fronts, making the surfaces of those objects easier to de-ice. Researchers from Princeton University have formulated a method to control and measure atoms that are indistinguishable when observed with an optical lens. The work allows researchers to observe atomic interactions and quantum mechanical behavior. The research has implications for quantum networking and the study of fundamental dynamics of strongly interacting quantum systems. Planetary scientists at Brown University have introduced an infrared spectroscopic method for studying olivine, a material that provides insights into the formation of the Moon, Mars, and other planetary bodies. Informally dubbed crossover spectroscopy, the scientists deployed the technique to examine the spectral range in between the visible near-infrared and the mid-infrared ranges. The researchers homed in on the 4 to 8 micrometer range and even more specifically in the spectral features of olivine at 5.6 and 6.0 micrometers. And finally, new technology from researchers at Tel Aviv University has the potential to help cameras recognize colors that are invisible to the human eye. The development, which relies on imaging upconversion, has the potential to advance applications in fields such as computer gaming, photography, security, medicine, and astronomy. Up next, SPIE Vice President and founder of the Vanderbilt Biophotonics Center, Anita Mahadevan Jansen, joins news editor Jake Saltzman for a conversation about innovations in biomedical optics and biomedical imaging. I'm Joel Williams, and this is All Things Photonics. Today's episode is sponsored by Comsol, the leading developer of multi-physics simulation software, which includes tools for building and deploying simulation apps. Comsol's wave and ray optics capabilities are used for modeling, imaging, and sensing in consumer electronics and biotechnology, information processing and communication systems, and more. See how the Comsol software fits your optical analysis needs at www.comsol.com. And by PI Physique Instrumente. PI manufactures world-class precision motion control alignment, and automation systems, including air bearings, hexapods, and piezo drives at locations in North America, Europe, and Asia. 
PI's customers are leaders in high-tech industries and research institutes, in fields such as photonics, biotech, life sciences, semiconductors, and aerospace. Visit www.pi-usa.us. Our guest today is a fellow of the Optical Society, the Society for Applied Spectroscopy, and the American Society for Lasers in Medicine and Surgery. She currently serves as Vice President of SPIE and is a pioneer in the field of biomedical optics. Her accomplishments include the discovery and development of infrared neural stimulation and PTI technology, which enables in-situ monitoring of the parathyroid tissue during thyroid surgery. She joins us from Nashville, Tennessee, where she is the Warren H. Ingram Professor of Biomedical Engineering and co-founder and director of the Biophotonics Center at Vanderbilt University. Hello, Anita Mahadevin-Jansen. Hey, Jake. Thank you very much for asking me to serve on this podcast and look forward to our conversation. Thank you for being here with us. I wanted to start with uh, a, a statement or a quote that you've made with regards to the Vanderbilt Biophotonics Center. And you talk about quote, pushing the boundaries of what light can do for discovery and clinical translation in medicine and biology. But your interest in medical science and technology predates your work in biomedical engineering and biomedical optics. I'm curious what ultimately compelled you to work with light. Great question, Jake. And I guess for me to be able to answer that question, I'd have to go back in time and go a little bit into the history of how I got into the field at all. My education, early education, bachelor's and master's was in physics, very much pure theoretical and practical physics because in India, I did this in India at the University of Bombay or what's now University of Mumbai, and, but was always in love with the medicine side of things because I thought I wanted to go to medical school, but I was not successful in getting into medical school. And so I really started realized very early in my undergrad years that what I really wanted to do was take physics principles and apply it to medicine. And at that time, uh, biomedical engineering was not necessarily a major or a pathway in India, so I had to explore coming to the United States to do it. I will say that when I studied optics in my undergrad years, I didn't see the point. I didn't understand what one could do with it. You know, I still remember learning the lens maker's equation and thinking, why do I need to know this? I'm not going to be an optometrist. You know, who cares? But, you know, you don't really know that what's going to happen in the future. When I came, I finally was successful, and I came to the University of Texas at Austin for my Ph.D. I will thank uh, my Ph.D. advisor, Rebecca Richards-Cordham, for turning me on to the field of light and applying light for medical purposes, for biomedical applications. Because, you know, when she told me what she was looking to do, you know, in my first week, at Texas, trying to explore where I might want to do my research. She told me, and it was like a light bulb went off. That's it. That's what I want to do. I want to apply physics and the physics of light for medicine. And that's really what led to my entire career, that moment of learning that this was possible. You know, what I had only envisioned in a vague way while I was in India, to see that that this was a real thing. Because you have to remember, this is pre-internet days, so it wasn't like I was able to do research to dig up what people around the world were doing with various physics and techniques. 
So uh, that would be my turning point of how I ended up in biomedical optics or biophotonics, depending on who you talk to as to what that field is called. And over the years, what I've learned is that using thinking within the bounds of existing techniques limits what you can do with light, especially in the biomedical field. And that's why, you know, this phrase of pushing the boundaries of what light can do, because you have to think creatively beyond the obvious and not be this hammer looking for a nail, but create your hammer based on the shape and size and everything else to do the nail and, and be creative in your thinking and development process to really affect change and applications, such as what I want to do mostly, which is the clinical translation or translation more broadly into medicine and biology. A lot of those that we've talked to uh, this season and last have talked about that light bulb going off moment. Can you describe what that was like for you? Hmm. Um, boy, man, it was a long time ago. <laughs> um, I would say that I've had several light bulbs go off over time. So, you know, I can probably relate more in those terms. It's, it's really an aha sort of moment, you know, where you go. Um, for me, it was really all those thoughts I'd had that allowed me as, you know, a young Indian woman in, in, in a setting, more traditional setting, conservative setting, I had taken the gamble and the effort to come to the U.S. with just an idea, not necessarily knowing where it would lead, right? And then I came in and I saw that I wasn't wrong. My ideas were on par. You know, it was real. And that's really, for me, what the light bulb was. It was something that I only had a vague idea for had become, was, was coming into fruition or would be able to come to fruition, is perhaps the more accurate way to put it. I want to ask you about infrared neural stimulation. Before we do that, I want to get uh, some clarification on what exactly we're talking about here. Can you uh, break it down for us? Sure. In the early 2000s, we were working, at that time, uh, Vanderbilt University had a free electron lasers and a free electron laser center that I was involved in. And I was working with functional neurosurgeons at that time, Dr. Pete Conrad. And I was also doing some work on using light and fluorescence and diffuse reflectance spectroscopy for brain tumor margin assessment. He was the chief resident. I was a young faculty, you know, and I was observing one of his brain tumor cases, which led, uh, and I'm giving you a little bit of a history of how we discovered INS here, uh, or infrared neural stimulation. And um, while we were there, he was doing what's referred to as an awake craniotomy, which is where the patient, you know, the brain is exposed and the patient is actually um, woken up partially. They're numb, but are woken up enough to perform some task or function in order to identify the functionally sensitive areas of the brain that happen to be near a tumor so that when they excise the tumor, they know they won't functionally compromise the patient. And Pete looked at me and he said, Anita, you're an optics person. Instead of me having to use this electrode to find all these regions, can you just make it light up for me? That led subsequently to a dinner conversation later that day or that week uh, where we, my, you know, my husband, Duco, Jansen, and I, as well as Pete and his wife, joined us. And we started talking more about this, this, hey, can you come up with this idea thing? It led us, for whatever reason, to think, well, I wonder if light could actually activate the brain, 
not just light up the brain. And so we went the very next day to the lab uh, and did this experiment uh, where we used the FEL and one of the infrared wavelengths of the FEL. So this is a pulsed infrared laser. The FEL at Vanderbilt was variable between 2 to 10 microns. And we happened to do that first experiment at about 3.65 microns. And we, we decided, okay, what happened? What would happen if you took this light, turned it down to where the power was pretty low, and put, put the light on a, a nerve, exposed nerve? Would we see an action potential or a twitch? This was done on a frog sciatic nerve, by the way. And it worked. You know, we could keep turning the power down, and we had to turn it down pretty low, and we would still see a visible twitch every time there was a single pulse of infrared light. So that was the birth of infrared neural stimulation, that you can use pulse infrared light to transiently deposit energy onto, now we're discovering not just neural, but non-neural tissues and cells to initiate an electrical response. So that's sort of, and what we've now since discovered as well is that not only can we stimulate and initiate a response, we can also change the parameters of the light source to inhibit the response so that not only can we do infrared neural stimulation, we can also do infrared neural inhibition. So we've now more generally started to call this infrared neural modulation. All of this has occurred uh, in the last 15 years or so uh, at a pretty rapid pace. Can you talk about some of the um, applications that you and your lab and, and teammates are currently working on? So uh, this is so now we work, uh, we can do this anywhere from about 1.45 microns through, we've done this through 2.12, the homeomiac wavelength of light. Because my forte and inclination tends to be clinical we have projects, everything from the fundamental to the clinical in this domain of infrared neural modulation. We still don't necessarily, while we, okay, early experiments told us that the effect is one of thermal gradient, change delta, temperature, uh, and that it's a combination of temperature and time that determines what happens when you introduce infrared light, pulsed infrared light. However, what happens once that thermal gradient is, is introduced and how the biological and the biophysical response occurs is not fully understood. And so there's been work that's shown that it's perhaps a, it causes a capacitive effect, which does something to this uh, membrane, which then triggers exchange of uh, ion current and therefore an action potential. So we have a series of work uh, projects that are focused around really teasing out that mechanism in now different types of cells and tissues, and I mean different types of brain cells, for example, astrocytes, microglia, uh, neuronal cells, of course, Schwann cells, and so on, a higher order, so the intact brain, spinal cord, and nerve. But then also, what we know it works, so what can we use it for? And so we have more applied experiments or projects there was a work published last year on using infrared light and INS to affect the primate response to a task and so that we know we can do behavioral change with infrared light as well. And then more clinically, we are now looking at nerve monitoring as a way to more precisely control what happens to a nerve 
in things such as nerve compression injuries and so on. So it spans the breadth of looking at a peripheral nerves, intact brain, and then cellular components. How close is INS to clinical implementation? Oh, we just got our first IRB, well, our second IRB approval for doing the nerve monitoring. We have published already using infrared light and INS for human applications. Uh, we published this, uh, I don't remember when the paper came out, I think 2015 or 2016, somewhere there, which was to use this in dorsal rhizotomy cases. This is a procedure that's done in cerebral palsy patients. And we showed in about 10 patients that you can, in fact, use this in human nerves. In this case, it was nerve rootlets and get a significantly higher spatial selectivity so you can actually see individual rootlets, which muscle function it triggers, and therefore be more selective in cutting these rootlets, which is what is done in the dorsal rhizotomy procedure. That was our first foray into human implementation. And that's a good application, but we wanted to really use something that's more common, procedures where this could really affect. And nerve injury is one that comes to mind right away because it applies to a lot of different applications. And that's where the most recent IRB approval has been brought through, where we're still going to do it in a procedure where the nerve is going to get cut anyway because we've got to demonstrate safety first before we can start using it uh, routinely in cases. So we'll do that study and show how INS can really help be very precise in identifying an injured nerve, for example, as well as the health of the nerve in general towards making for effective procedures for repair. In 2011, I want to take us back uh, 10 years. In 2011, you were interviewed at Photonics West. And at the time, you with your, your husband, who you mentioned, Dr. Duco Jansen, were directing what was then a biophotonics initiative in the Vanderbilt Department of Biomedical Engineering. And you said at that point it had taken about 10 years to structure the initiative to, to arrive at a point where you were beginning to heavily recruit doctoral students to study biomedical optics at Vanderbilt. Another decade later now, can you reflect on how the growth of the Biophotonics Center is indicative of the growth of the biophotonics and biomedical optics fields? I would say the biggest difference is the fact that it's not just Duco and me who are biomedical optics faculty at Vanderbilt anymore. We are many more in number, not just in biomedical engineering, but in the School of Engineering and beyond than what we were when, you know, when, I, when I had did that interview. So we are now a formal center as opposed to being an initiative. And I say that because the Duco and I were hired as part of a special opportunity award from the Whitaker Foundation, which started a lot of uh, biomedical engineering programs around the country. We had to start, we were starting from scratch, but because, because before that, there was no biomedical optics at Vanderbilt. And it took us 10 years to build our reputation, be able to recruit, to make, give ourselves that identity of biomedical optics faculty at Vanderbilt. Since then, we had to work the internal politics and um, really work towards formalizing. We had originally thought to call ourselves an institute, but that requires a lot more political capital and, uh, and a lot more structural change, whereas with the support of Philippe Fauchet, uh, who's the dean of the School of Engineering at Vanderbilt, uh, himself a photonics, uh, a nanophotonics expert. With his support, we were able to form the Vanderbilt Biophotonics Center. 
And that's essentially allowed us to have a place that everybody interested in using light for medicine and biology, not just medicine and biology, to be perfectly honest, to come together and have a centralized effort that's across the entire university. So we are, in effect, an institute, a trans-institutional center, and really have become the place people come to when they want, have a problem and would like to see if there's a light-based solution for it. Where before, at least for my clinical translational work, uh, where before I would need to go seek out the clinicians and see what problems they might have, or I might have heard of a problem, so I find the clinician who's working in that field at Vanderbilt. Now I get clinicians, even residents, come to me saying, hey, I had this idea and I have this problem. Do you think there's a light-based method that we could use to solve it? And that's been sort of the biggest change, and I'm proud that we've made that work for us. And that's now spanned not just the clinical, but also the fundamental. People know if you want to work with lasers and light, you go to the Biophotonic Center across campus. It's quite an accomplishment. And in addition to the, the, I suppose, more technical accomplishments throughout your career, from an industry point of view, it's really a monumental accomplishment to develop this center. Can you talk about how um, the center's work has contributed to the biomedical optics and biophotonics communities? I would say that one of the things that's unique about the Biophotonics Center, perhaps not totally unique, but more impactful, is that we are based in an academic institution where education is a priority. So one of the biggest things we are able to do is really develop the next generation of biophotonics experts, both for industry and academia and government and other parts of the professional industry of the world of optics and photonics. And so that's, I think, I would say our single biggest accomplishment is being able to produce these students who people know can be relied upon to understand optics and photonics as it applies to the world of bio. Uh, biomedical engineering and biomedical sciences. And so that, to me, has really helped impact the field because I routinely get folks from industry say, hey, do you have anybody graduating? Because we're looking for people with the expertise that your team produces. This has been great because I can, when I'm recruiting PhD students, in fact, any of us, we can confidently tell the recruiting, the students we're recruiting that, we can almost assure you that once you know what you want to do for a career, you can find that job within two to three weeks. You know, it usually takes them a while to figure out what they want to do. But once they do, we've rarely had, we've had a couple, but we've rarely had students who haven't been able to find a job in their field of choice very quickly. And I think that's, to me, that's sort of very, you know, important in today's dynamic of jobs and careers. We're speaking with Dr. Anita Mahadevan-Jansen of Vanderbilt University's Biophotonics Center. One of the things about the Biophotonics Center, uh, in addition to being a trans-institutional center, is that in many ways it's a multidisciplinary center. There is involvement from the schools of engineering, medicine, arts and sciences. Can you talk a little bit about how that dynamic sort of encompasses the, the field of biophotonics and how it, it enables additional work to take place in the center? Absolutely, and I'll, I'll, I'll use one example because that really stands out as to what that means. So 
you know, historically, as I've said already, clinical translation was my, my thing. So working with the medical center and bringing folks from that part of our campus into the world of biophotonics was a big part of what I did. But as I started looking at translation more broadly, one of our more recent projects is what we call Biomid, uh, which is an acronym, actually, that essentially stands for Biomedical Microscopy Innovation, Immersion, and Discovery. And what we're doing now is we're translating to the biologist, the fundamental scientist. We're working with the department chair of physics, uh, Shane Hudson, Matt Tiska, who's a professor in the cell and development biology, and my own team of Brian Millis and John Kozub, who's an optical engineer and a biologist, these two. So really, a physicist, an engineer, a a biologist uh, are all coming together to now develop microscopies, uh, pushing the boundaries of microscopy in new ways to really enable the biologist ask the fundamental biological questions. It's an example of how we can now translate. So I can, I, you know, I haven't, I don't know if I've made the full change on our website, but instead we're not just about clinical translation, we're just about translation, period. And in speaking about that, it comes up that not only are you a member of the American Society for Lasers in Medicine and Surgery and the Society for Applied Spectroscopy, you've just now talked about microscopy and certainly optics too. Your work requires you to work with vast technologies and instruments. Can you talk about some of your favorites? That's an interesting question. I saw what you were asking, but I'm going to answer it slightly differently if you don't mind. Okay. Um, so one as I worked through my PhD and then started at Vanderbilt uh, working with clinicians, one of the things that I realized is in order to be successful in translating a technology for a given application, in my case clinical, I could not be tied to a single technique or technology because each clinical problem is very different. Its needs are different, and once you understand the clinical problem, you realize, hey, wait, my hammer, my Raman spectroscopy, for example, which is one of the things I'm known for, is not going to work there. Or it's just too hard. Why would I want to do that? And so I've developed a philosophy in my lab of what I will call problem-based research. So anytime we start a project, we start with understanding the clinical problem and then develop the right technology for solving that problem. That's the sort of mantra, if you will, in some ways that has applied itself across the board in everything that I do. Not that there isn't a place to develop the technology because it's a cool idea. And in some ways you could say infrared neural stimulation was that. But still, I'm not going to go around using INS for everything. There's a time and place for it where I will only use it if it'll actually solve a current clinical problem. Because of that, while, you know, I've done a lot for the world of applying Raman spectroscopy for in vivo applications and probably have done the most in that part of the world, I don't have a favorite technique because the favorite technique of the moment is whatever will help me solve the medical problem and really make a difference. You referred to the PTI early in your introduction. That's a good example of something that resulted because of this problem-based approach that I have. That was a typical case where we actually had a third-year medical surgical resident 
who came to me saying she was doing endocrine surgery rotations where they do thyroidectomies and parathyroidectomies. And she noticed that it was really hard to find the parathyroid gland. This is a tiny gland, normally the size of a grain of rice. There's four of them in the human body behind the thyroid in your neck. Uh, And it's the only organ that regulates the calcium in your body. And so patients are typically concerned, you know, have to realize when they go through these procedures that having lifelong problems with with calcium is a very real possibility and that, in fact, the biggest cause for litigation for these procedures is accidental injury or removal of the parathyroid gland and its blood supply. So she came with the problem and we started thinking about, okay, what would be the right approach, optical light-based approach, and if there is a light-based approach to be able to do what is different and unique in the industry, which is finding a normal gland. Most of our field focuses on disease detection. This is not about disease detection. This is about just sort of a a guidance uh, system, finding a gland that could be perfectly normal in the body. And it was over the course of the first few months, as we evaluated a variety of techniques, we discovered a brand new phenomenon that wasn't known before, that parathyroid gland had this really bright near-infrared autofluorescence. And that then led to us utilizing that and come up with, from our team uh, and my uh, collaboration with AI Biomed into the PTI, a probe-based product. There's also now commercial devices on using more a camera base that was based from the same in discovery. So that's what I mean in that it's hard for me to say I have one or other technique that's favorite. It depends on what problem I'm solving in the moment. That's a tremendous answer, and, and there's certainly no shortage of, of problems that your work has addressed from non-invasive diagnostics for cervical dysplasia or developing optical blood testing methodologies for, for neonatal babies. Uh, I'm curious what has to happen to convince you that your technology, your, your range of tools, for example, may be a match for a problem. What's the hump that one has to get over for you to say, you know, this is probably something that, that we can work towards addressing? Okay, let me let me put this in the right context. To me, I don't like to, if there are other groups working on it already and have a long track record of it, they are, there are experts who can do that. So I'm usually looking for problems that haven't been addressed before. They have to be something that is a challenge that has not been. So my first task, if somebody comes with a problem, is always, let's go look in the literature as what people have tried. And if you know, and in many of these things, there've typically been one or two other papers, perhaps. In the parathyroid case, for example, there were none. There were papers on trying to detect parathyroid cancer, but nothing about just finding the gland. So that's what excites me the most: is coming up with tools or techniques or ideas where it hasn't been done before. You know, so I'm blazing a new trail. That there's a cliche to it, where I'm making a difference. By doing that, now I will say there have been cases where once I started working on it and I've presented this work, other people have jumped on the bandwagon, and that's okay. And, you know, it's also possible they get more successful than me, and that's also okay. But when I start, I like it to be a unique problem that hasn't necessarily been addressed before. 
I placed you at Photonics West 2011 earlier, and I want to go back. Also at that conference, you served as featured speaker for that year's Women in Optics event. What advice do you give to, to women and girls working in or studying science? To blaze your own trail. That's probably the biggest thing. To get help when you need it for all aspects. It's uh, one of the biggest things I, t- I talked about then and I continue to bring up is having role models and mentors. And they can be spread out all, of the, all over the place in every part of your life. Uh, I would say over the course of my career, I've had everything from personal mentors to professional mentors to, let's call them almost more scientific mentors. And every one of them has paved the way for me to be able to be successful. And that's something, you know, often the two main traits I see are a lack of confidence and a lack of knowledge or knowing that one can be successful among women and girls. And so that's usually what I'm trying to instill. Be there for them as a mentor or be, make myself available anyway, and it's up to them to utilize my help. Uh, if they would like, um, but ultimately just help build self-confidence. And actually, to be perfectly honest, that applies not just to women, because I've started to work more broadly in, in a diverse environment across the board. I find this to be the case regardless uh, in almost every student that I work with now. Uh, and I work with high school students all the way through uh, PhDs and now postdocs and even young faculty. And instilling confidence in their abilities Learning things like multitasking, by the way, are the tools needed, but ultimately the biggest difference that has made for me is not letting preconceived notions of how one should behave determine how I should behave. If the right thing for me to do was to take my little child with me to work in order to write a grant and submit it, then that's right for me. And my department chair at the time learn to adjust very quickly with that approach. And that's what I try to bring in. And the other thing I will say, I do encourage women to get into academia because it's a world that's so much more flexible than industry. I will say the current pandemic is bringing flexibility to the world of industry as well. Uh, And I hope that change is here to stay. But historically, you could do things like bring your kid to work because there isn't a restriction in uh, in terms of what I you know I have to do or I can do in my workplace. I'm glad that you mentioned the, the diversity of ages and of students that you you work with. The diversity in terms of skill level and area of expertise and interest. And it requires that you teach uh, a number of classes to students of all ages and areas of study. And I I know that it includes elective courses and and certainly more focused work in your lab. What are some of your favorite classes to teach? Teaching has been, was the bane of my existence when I first started at Vanderbilt. I'm the first one and I, you know, one of the things I really work towards is making sure and encourage those interested in going to academia that they learn how to teach just the process of just learning how to teach and being an effective uh, person in the classroom. Uh, I had a lot of help from the Vanderbilt Center for Teaching, and I encourage, you know, if I have students or postdocs who are interested in becoming faculty, I try to equip them with those skills that I didn't have. So when I first started at Vanderbilt, I actually taught four different courses the first four semesters I was there, which was hell, by the way. 
I've lived through it and I've <laughs> survived and I've done well with myself over the years. And so then, you know, the easiest classes are certainly those classes one has taught before. My philosophy has always been, and I think this everybody accepts this, um, that is you have to teach a class, a course at least three times for you to know what you're doing really well, right? And then you still want to, at least I like to change something every time I teach so that every time I teach it's something new, it's something exciting that there's that researcher brain in me can actually implement also in my teaching, uh, which is why I really enjoyed, uh, and I'm taking a slight detour again. These favorite questions are not my style of answering, as you can tell. Uh, one of the things I did as a junior faculty, and there was only my husband and I who were part of this, was we had an engineering research center, an NSF-funded engineering research center called VANT uh, on enhancing engineering, bioengineering education. This is actually an education-based grant that was a consortium of uh, four different institutions. And that really was where I learned how to be effective, how to use real-world problems to be effective in the classroom and get engaged uh, in that. And so I've continued to do that. One of the tenets of that that led from there to the current consortium called CERTL, and uh, C-I-R-T-L, by the way, dot in, one can look that up. Uh, it, this was subsequently an NSF second center that was across more like 23 and then 46 institutions on enhancing bioengineering education by using principles of things like learning through diversity. Teaching as research is one that I've pushed a lot uh, because what made me want to get into academia was ultimately my research abilities, and by bringing my research abilities to the classroom, I was able to become an effective teacher. So now, I mean, like this semester, I am teaching a graduate class on optical detection technologies for biomedical applications. Obviously, it implements, uh, it derives itself directly from what I do for my research, which allows me to be really creative in the classroom bring in different techniques and different and really push and where I focus on not so much in individual technologies or techniques and I do talk about individual techniques but teaching the students how to learn and pick up any technique they may need for their own research that's what I tend that tends to be how I teach my classes uh, over the years I've taught a required course around biomedical data analysis or essentially biostatistics and that was a lot of fun as well by bringing in these components of teaching the way I'm, uh, you know, I'm talking about, I was able to really be effective there as well. But what drives me in the classroom tends to be that aha moment we talked about in students as they walk out of my class. That's fun. And that's what I've learned to love about teaching. One of the other, uh, I suppose, unique uh, aspects of your of your career and your your work life at Vanderbilt uh, is that you share your work with your husband. We've mentioned uh, Dr. Duco Jansen uh, a couple times here in the episode. What's it like to work um, alongside him? Hey, look, we've been married 25 years now. We haven't killed each other yet, so it obviously works. Um, <laughs> we know what we each are good at and what we are not good at and where we are complementary. Uh, one of the things we learned very early in our career is you don't, we don't want to be sitting next to each other when we write something. Our styles are very different, and we argue to death <laughs> if it comes to that. So we've learned to be what I'll call sequential writers, which is 
you know, the one of us drafts something, sends it to the other person. The other person needs to be somewhere else when they're editing it or fix, you know, adjusting it, send it back and forth. But it's fun. I mean, it's made, we each understand the stresses of the other's career. It's allowed us to therefore really be effective as a couple, uh, as a family. And uh, we've always tried very hard not to talk about work at the dining table. It's a little bit different now that our kids are fully grown. But one of the things we had to actually work hard to teach people at Vanderbilt is don't assume at any given time one of us knows where the other one is. You know, my husband likes to use this word, we are not each other's secretaries, you know, or admins. We don't keep our respective schedules, you know. We barely know we ourselves are, let alone where the other person is. Uh, and people have learned that very well. You know, no, nobody any asks, you know, Duco where Anita is, and Anita where Duco is. But it's worked very well for us. I know couples who have struggled with having that, but it's worked very effectively, and Vanderbilt's been a great environment for us to work together. We've been speaking with Dr. Anita Mahadevan-Jansen, who is joining us from Vanderbilt University, where she heads the that university's biophotonic center. And I want to end on a question that sort of talks about your legacy. The impact of your work now is felt in numerous aspects of, of medical science, of photonics, of biomedical engineering, many other disciplines. And your influence is also now prevalent in instrumentation, particularly in microscopy, which we've we've touched on here. Uh, with such a ranging set of achievements throughout the the broad scientific landscape, what aspects of your work are you most proud of? I'll start with the students. I'm really proud of the students that have come out of my lab and what they've been able to achieve. So that's on the people side. And then on the technology side, I'm really proud of producing or developing a, a device that's now actually being used in patients with the PTI and that whole set of technologies on using autofluorescent, near-infrared autofluorescence for parathyroid. That's a game changer in a field where there is no biophotonics technologies, and the fact that I've actually been able to walk it through the FDA process was very satisfying because that's why I got into the field. It's what drives me to see, to be able to do that uh, was very uh, satisfying. Of course, now I think to myself, okay, what's the next thing I want to achieve? And I don't know that I have the answer. Uh, what do I want to accomplish in the next eight to 10 years? You know, that's hopefully what I have of my career. So I should add, since you have a previous question about working with my husband, we've always talked about retiring at right at about 62 or so, you know, and because there's so many more things we'd like to do, travel being one of them. So what do I want to accomplish in the next 10 years of my life? And I don't know that I have the answer one answer, I guess. I love what I do. It drives me and uh, keeps me going. And this whole biomed and microscopy is a new world uh, and every day challenges me in new ways and helps me grow. While I can still come up with that next technology that's going to help patients around the world. So I don't know if I answered that question quite directly in terms of what you were asking. And I think I did that with all your questions and my apologies if I sidetrack those questions. But I'm always looking for, and this is very cliche, for that next mountain to climb, you know, and I don't know that I've figured out what that is for me. But I'm, I'm happy with how things are going in my life and my career. And uh, we'll see what the future will bring. My next current, my next 
immediate mountain is being president of SPIE and what that entails, especially after uh, 2020. But I'm, I'm, all, I'm excited about what the future will bring. Dr. Anita Mahadevang Jansen is the Orrin H. Ingram Professor of Biomedical Engineering. Uh, and as she mentioned, she's currently serving as Vice President of SPIE as a member of that organization's presidential chain. Thank you so much for joining us. Today's episode is sponsored by Coherent. Coherent lasers have been enabling breakthroughs in scientific research, life sciences, microelectronics, and materials processing for over 50 years. Today, we're introducing Coherent Amplify, a series of virtual events. Join us for the inaugural conference on December 10th, focusing on neuroscience and cell biology. Don't miss out on world-class keynotes, session talks, roundtable discussions, and networking opportunities. Register today. Learn more at www.coherent.com amplify. summer, a joint research team from MIT, LSU, and Thorlab's Crystalline Solutions reported their development of a quantum light squeezer. The system limits quantum noise in laser beams and retains its quantum mechanical properties at room temperature. Particularly noteworthy to development is the system's compact configuration. It increases the probability such a light squeezer can be added to high-precision experiments that improve laser measurements in settings where quantum noise may otherwise be a restricting factor. Vital to the system are two precisely designed mirrors. And joining us now is an architect of those mirrors, Garrett Cole of Thorlabs, Inc., who joins us from Santa Barbara. Thank you for joining us, Garrett. The two quantum light squeezer, or the quantum light squeezer system, I should say, that I just described in its most basic terms, uh, feature two mirrors, one of which has a diameter that is a little bit less than that of a human here. Can you describe for us uh, how something so small contributes to this idea that is really so monumental, the idea of lowering quantum noise by squeezing light? Yeah, hey, thank you very much, uh, Jake, for the opportunity to chat with you today. And uh, I have to say I'm really glad that you brought up this work because it's a, it's a long-standing effort. This is the culmination of a you know, decade-long collaboration between myself, now at Dorlabs Crystalline Solutions, together with Thomas Corbett's group at LSU and Nergis Mavalva at MIT. Yeah, clearly there was a, it was a challenging, say, engineering or scientific undertaking to make this experiment work. That's clear, I think, from the timeline that I mentioned. And, uh, you know, one of the key ingredients to make this work was a high performance mirror, um, that, as you mentioned, was quite small, right? Less than a diameter comparable to the diameter of a human hair. And the point there was that this mirror had to have high optical performance, but then at the same time had to be just easily, let's say, kicked around by the incident light. And, uh, you know, that may not, I think that'll be apparent to a lot of your listeners, but some uh, may find it su- surprising to know that you know, light exerts a force when it reflects off of, a, off of an object. And this is the so-called radiation pressure force, where the light in reflection you know, transfers some of its momentum to, uh, to an object, say, to a mirror. And uh, the need here was to make a, a very light, easily displaced mirror so those individual photons bouncing off the mirror could, like I said, kick it around. So yeah, that was really one of the most challenging aspects of this work, was to make something extremely high performance, extremely small, you know, that this thing was of the utmost highest quality. So you could see these, you know, very fragile quantum properties, in this case at room temperature. Um, So it was a very exciting, uh, 
very fun collaborative effort to be involved in. You know, like anything else in, in the material world, be it the quantum realm or, or, or really any uh, photonics or optics application, some components are of a higher quality uh, and a higher precision than others. Um, but not many are of a higher quality and precision than those that you're designing. How does someone move to the very top of the, the optical design quality ladder, so to speak? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. I mean, for us, it, it really comes down to our focus area. And I would say it comes down to sort of the, let's say, founding story of, of the company. So, you know, we didn't work our way up, say, from a lower level of quality. But instead, we really entered at that level just because of the work that we that we focused on. So I was uh, effectively like a staff scientist, university uh, researcher at the University of Vienna, and uh, focused on fundamental quantum optical mechanics, or quantum optics experiments there in, in Austria. The work we were doing just directly required, again, mirrors or optics with the utmost in optical quality. And through that work, trying to shave away these limiting noise processes that, again, would disrupt the observation of these quantum phenomena, basically developed a coding technology that allowed for these things to be visible, again, as in this work, at, at room temperature under, let's say, fairly extreme conditions to, in the realm of uh, quantum mechanics. So, yeah, this was basically a natural outcome of the, the type of work we did, the lab that this, this work was spun out of and ended up being commercialized from. And it's an interesting combination of my background. You know, so I, my Ph.D. dissertation and postgraduate work centered on semiconductor laser development. So I came from an interesting you know, semiconductor micro nanofabrication background, which I think brings a really interesting and unique tool set for um, both the materials options and also just general, let's say, manufacturing capabilities uh, in the bulk optics space. So it's an interesting merger between these traditional bulk super polished optics and basically the manufacturing tool set you'd use for microelectronics or, or micro optics. And so by combining these things or fusing these things together, you can realize you know, new levels of performance that puts us, you know, kind of a lame automotive analogy, but we're coming in at the Bugatti level compared to like, you know, a, a functional optic that may be sort of not to knock a Toyota Camry, but uh, more run-of-the-mill optic. And like I said, this just comes from the the nature of the applications that we're targeting and the fact that it's spun out of a lab that focused on these, uh, you know, very extreme quantum experiments. And with the the high precision and the uh, the extremely capable performance, you know, I, I have to think it's reasonable to connect the dots here and conclude that some of the research that you've had a hand in over the years is operating at a pretty high level and highly innovative. Uh, can you talk to a little bit about some of those uh, experiments? I know you've talked about the, the the Thor Labs MIT LSU collaboration. Tell us about some of the other opportunities you've uh, had a hand in. Yeah, and I'll, I will still stay on the MIT LSU thing just to start with because um, this is actually a series of one of three papers, which is, again, really was really exciting outcome. And I do want to highlight that because, like I said, it was a longstanding collaboration. I mean, it started roughly in, in 2009. It actually came out of a really nice situation where Thomas Corbett had visited our group and stayed with us for a month in, in Vienna. And yes, over the span of 2019 to 2020, we had a publication in Nature on the first observation of broadband quantum uh, uh, radiation pressure noise at room temperature. Then there was a, a follow-on experiment doing squeeze light injection into the cavity to, um, let's say, modulate the noise of that microresonator, of that really small mirror that you had referenced. And then this most recent paper, which which we're focusing on here, which was the opposite demonstration, which is squeeze light production from that optomechanical cavity. The bigger picture tie-in there is, you know, these groups at MIT and LSU are, are 
closely connected with are part of the LIGO scientific collaboration. So we work uh, in tandem or in collaboration with uh, folks from the LSE, LIGO scientific collaboration, developing prototype optics for next generation gravitational wave detectors, uh, which is clearly very exciting work. It is a hot topic uh, right now, really the cutting edge of, of optics, of you know, cosmology, astrophysics, and so on. So it's a very exciting field uh, to work in there. On the flip side, uh, same technical limitations interestingly show up in the development of advanced optical atomic clocks, of advanced microwave systems, let's say, you know, next-generation radar, where you're really trying to maximize the optical quality of the optics involved in these systems and reduce their limiting noise. And uh, so it's, it's really exciting to work with folks from the quantum optics community, from, like I said, the gravitational wave detector community, all the way to these precision metrologists at labs like NIST doing uh, these, these very advanced optical atomic clocks, really you know, the best timekeeping systems that exist uh, worldwide. Garrett Cole with us from uh, Thor Labs Crystalline Solutions. I'm going to ask you a question that takes you back. It takes you back no more than 18 months ago, but in this current environment, that's uh, quite a while uh, in eternity. In relation to a year and a half ago, what are some of the trends and some of the applications that you're seeing developers requiring today uh, as, as they pursue these, these optical solutions? Yeah, and I will, it, it is amazing to think that 18 months ago it just feels like a world away <laughs> you know, at this point, clearly given the sort of state of affairs. You know, the biggest change I'd say personally for me, let me just take that uh, tack for a second. You know, we went from a small standalone, you know, high-tech startup uh, in Santa Barbara to now being part of an organization that's, you know, 100 times larger. So Crystal and Mir Solutions, the company that I co-founded in uh, 2013, was acquired by Thor Labs in December uh, 2019. So that, that in and of itself was a, a very exciting process. You know, really, I'd say the big change then and coming from that direction is the fact that, you know, obviously it's a small, scrappy startup. On one hand, we were pushing the limits of performance that we could achieve, but we also had to build a functional business where we could continue to pay people and our vendors and, <laughs> and so on, you know, the basic uh, requirements. Yeah, no, that is, uh, that is an important facet of business. It, it really is. And, uh, you know, now it's, you know, having this this close connection with Thor Labs, with the the catalog business, it gives us obviously a much wider reach, a much larger customer base compared to what we had before. And so the aim is to get now, you know, these optics into the hands of as many researchers as possible, and uh, or as many end customers, right, from commercial users to academic users, and and so on. It's really nice to see sort of beyond our little niche and try to expand outside of that uh, and refine things in terms of. Know, cost of production to bring down like the price of these optics. As you can imagine, when you're operating in these uh, sort of extremes in terms of precision or, or quality, uh, there also comes uh, comes with it a price premium on the optics. And the aim is that we'll bring this down uh, over time, just to increase the volume uh, that that we can sell there. The biggest change I see from the customer side is one: these types of requirements are becoming, let's say, more common. Again, these are extreme you know, examples like these quantum optics or gravitational wave detectors, but more and more some of these these uh, performance metrics are becoming the norm, right? Everybody wants faster, better, but at the same time cheaper. And in our, our world, that's lower optical losses, higher optical quality, you know, extreme levels of, of low noise performance in these ultra-stable mirrors and cavities. So yeah, the, the focus spans everything from continuous technological advancement improvements in the manufacturing, and ultimately dropping the price and increasing the volume output of the parts. 
those of us who have been, uh, or those of you who I should say, who have been listening to uh, to our podcast and, and reading articles on uh, Photonics.com or in Photonics Spectrum Magazine, should be aware that we are hosting here at Photonics Media the first ever, the inaugural Photonics Spectrum Conference. And Garrett, you will be presenting uh, as part of the optics track uh, at the first ever summit. Tell us a little bit about your session and uh, what our conference attendees uh, can expect. Yeah, I have to say I'm very excited about the prospect, especially being part of the inaugural, uh, I'll say PSC, <laughs> Photonic yep. Spectra Conference. So clearly it's new to me also. I don't know what to expect, so I'll be experiencing it in real time with, with anybody who uh, you know joins. Uh, there appears to be a really nice diversity in, in topics. So it you know, covers lasers, optics, spectroscopy, biomedical imaging, um, which is it's very exciting to see, right? It's not a niche focus area. It's not just one specific topic. Um, obviously, I'll be participating in the, uh, the optics session. And again, this features a really nice, uh, diverse mix of academic and industrial speakers, which is nice. You know, sometimes you have conferences which are purely academic, or you'll get some that skew more commercial. And this looks to be a kind of balanced mix of both. So it's, it's cool to get both viewpoints uh, in a single conference. Specifically, um, I'll be speaking on applications of referencing what I talked about earlier, this interesting merger or fusion of, of semiconductor microfab and uh, traditional optics, as I mentioned, that we that we uniquely pursue. Uh, so I'll speak to that a little bit and some of the, the interesting aspects of, of exploiting that for the production of high-performance optics. Obviously, that's a topic near and dear to my heart because that's what we do you know, every day. Clearly, I'm highly biased as I'm participating, but I definitely urge all, all listeners to register for the event because it looks like it'll be very cool. We so appreciate I'm, the plug. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not getting paid for that. But, yeah. uh, in any event, Garrett's presentation is called Leveraging Micro and Nanofabrication Techniques to Advance Optical Interference Coatings and Structures. Thank you for being on with us, Garrett. Yeah, hey, thank you very much, Jake. Uh, it was great to be on. That does it for this episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our engineer, Alan Shepard, and to Joel Williams with the news. Our featured music is courtesy of betterwithmusic.com. Most of all, thank you, our listeners. As always, you can share your thoughts, pick us ideas, let us know how we're doing. You can reach us at allthings at photonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google, as well as on our website. Subscribe, never miss an episode. I'm Jake Saltzman. This has been a Photonics Media Production.